I've been an active stock picker for almost 20 years now. And after several years of doing it very unsuccessfully, I joined The Motley Fool and my education just exploded from there. And I became far more interested in stock picking than I was prior to that. A single decision at a single customer for any reason essentially blows a hole in the investment thesis for a company. The price of the stock and the performance of the business are 100% linked in the long term. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Brian Feroldi. Brian is the author of Why Does the Stock Market Go Up and writes the weekly newsletter Long Term Mindset. Before we get into the interview with Brian, just a quick word from our friends at Vodafone Business. Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service, offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone business customer to avail of this service. Search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the VHub digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode. Brian, welcome back to Stock Club. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, How is all over in the States? Mike, everything is going great here. Thank you for having me again. Um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. We had you back about a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, and it was one of our most popular episodes. So I know the listeners like you anyways, which is important because I don't think they like me anymore. Um, so we got to keep them on side. But I, I love I love what you've kind of done with your voice and the education around investing and stuff. But I'd like to go back to the very start and talk about that kind of moment that sparked your interest in investing. The, the first foundation, we'll say. Sure. Uh, So I grew up in a household that was uh, very good with personal finances. Uh, My parents both earned uh, incomes. My parents both lived below their means. My parents uh, both were were good savers. So I had a really good uh, foundation in my life for good personal finance habits. Uh, However, my parents were not good with investing, uh, the idea of, of taking your savings and growing it uh, over time was not something that they excelled at. Uh, they were both big believers in uh, you know putting your money into checking accounts and savings accounts at banks, but nothing basically more sophisticated uh, than that. Uh, my dad did dabble in individual stocks a little bit, but uh, I think they, he was largely uh, doing the exact same thing that I did at the start, which was buying garbage penny stocks with the hopes of essentially trading them to be higher and not doing any fundamental research on the companies themselves, which to be fair, was very hard to do as an individual investor in the 1990s. Um, so, so I had a good personal finance uh, background when I, when I graduated from college and started earning a, uh, a real uh, income, if, if, if you will. Um, in 2004, my dad handed me a copy of a book, the first book I ever read that was specifically about money and wealth creation, and that was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki. Um, for whatever reason, I was just naturally hardwired to basically ingest that information and want to devour as much financial content as I could get my hands on. Uh, That book introduced several uh, concepts to me that were completely foreign uh, to me at the time, such as anybody can build wealth, in one generation, your house is a liability, not an asset. The rich think differently about money. The rich own businesses, uh, et cetera. And those concepts truly uh, blew my mind. And they kick-started a love affair that continues to this day with me trying to educate myself about everything related to money, uh, investing, and finance that I can. 
Now, from there, I did graduate to reading a slew of, of other books. Um, I looked at investing in real estate. I looked at investing in laundromats. I looked at, looked at investing in commodities, and I looked at investing in the stock market. Uh, the stock market was the best match I found over time uh, for my personality and income. Uh, real estate is a great asset class, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of education uh, to get going in real estate. With the stock market, even back in the mid-2000s, you could start with just a few hundred dollars and kind of uh, teach yourself uh, as, as you go. And I also learned that I don't like to manage other people, so the idea of owning real estate and dealing with tenants really turned me off. Uh, so uh, I found that the best asset class that matches my personality uh, is the stock market. And I've been sticking with it ever since. So this is putting you on the spot a small bit, but if you could distill your investment philosophy into a sentence, what, what would that look like? Sure. In, invest in high quality, high growth, long duration assets and hold them until they're no longer great. Nice. I like that. It's a long sentence now, but I'll take it. You know, it's all right. Uh, so I think your catchphrase or one of your goals or mission statements is to demystify the stock market. What do you think is the most important step in demystifying the stock market for investors, either new or old? Yeah. Uh, I firmly believe that the stock market, specifically the U.S. stock market, is the greatest wealth creation machine ever made. Uh, it, is a, it is a system, it is a, um, a marketplace that allows ordinary people with ordinary incomes to generate extraordinary wealth uh, within within a single uh, a lifetime. It's truly a, a miracle when you step back and, and think about it. Um, however, uh, I would argue that 90 to 95 percent of the general population, they, uh, they know, they've heard of what the stock market is. They've heard of what the Dow Jones is, but they know nothing beyond that point. Even people that have money in the markets through a 401k or an IRA, I don't think that many of them could pass a very simple test asking questions like, what is a stock? What is the New York Stock Exchange? Why do stocks have value? How, who, or how about this one? Who gets the money when you buy stocks on an exchange? A lot of people think that the stock, that the money you paid goes to the company uh, itself. Um, so. I've made it my mission uh, in my, my career mission statement is to demystify the stock market. And I do my best to provide simple education that helps people to better understand the greatest wealth creation machine of all time. That's great. And, and so you, you didn't originally study finance, but you went back and did a finance MBA. And the route you've taken is very much from an individual investor's perspective. It's not from a finance type will say you know a financial mba the likely route to go down is hedge fund or investment banking or whatever else how did you settle on this kind of educational path we'll call it yeah so so when i was in college i had no idea what i wanted to do for a living uh none uh so uh, my parents suggested to me which i think was good advice just go with a generalized business degree uh right that is a generic enough um, major that you can get your hands in a bunch of different uh, aspects of, of business and you can kind of learn what you like uh, from, from there. So I thought that that was a, a decent enough uh, idea. So I did graduate. Uh, when I graduated in 2004, I had a business degree and my concentration was in healthcare management. That seems very specific. The reason that I chose that as my major is if I did that, 
if I said that that was my major, I saved $5,000 per year in tuition. <laughs> so I was like, Fair okay, enough. I guess that's my major. Um, <laughs> I did so something similar. A lot of people that take that major go into uh, healthcare consulting or they go into like the insurance uh, world. And I certainly tried to get my foot in the door uh, with that when I first graduated, but um, it did not uh, it did not come come to be. Uh, but I did end up working for a startup medical device company uh, right out of college, which proved to be a, a fortuitous uh, decision. But when I graduated from college, I still had no idea what I wanted to do or really no idea what interests me in my career. And it was only after working for a couple years and learning about investing did I discover that I was extremely interested and extremely passionate about investing uh, in, in the stock market. I had no idea how to turn that into a, a career, so I was mostly just doing it um, as a hobby and studying it uh, for fun on, on the sidelines. About 10 years into my uh, career in the medical device uh, world, the company I was working for changed their policy when they basically said, if you go to get an MBA, we'll essentially pay 100% of the tuition uh, at the time. And I kind of thought, well, I don't really need an MBA, but but I can't pass up the opportunity to essentially effectively get it uh, for a few thousand dollars out of pocket, considering that my company is going to pay for such a big part of the tuition. So when I went back to get my MBA, I decided to concentrate in the thing that interested me at the time, uh, which was which was uh, finance. And at that point, I'd been investing in the stock market and studying financial statements for more than 10 years. So it was interesting to see how, uh, how it's taught academically about investing and reading financial statements versus what I'd learned just on my own. Mm, it's interesting how, how those small decisions of tuition costs and all the rest can dictate such a big part of your life down the road. It's uh, that uh, branch theory, isn't it? Yep, yeah. absolutely. Um, so with your background in healthcare stocks, I know that that's one area of the stock market that has interested you. How do you feel that has, we'll say, given you an edge over other investors? Because healthcare in particular is an incredibly complex industry. I know some of the largest U.S. companies in particular are healthcare stocks, but it's, it's murky waters for someone who doesn't know well enough, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Um, healthcare is, I think, I think something like 17 or 18% of the GDP of, of the United States. And it's an absolutely massive uh, industry. And it's extremely complex, but there are hundreds of billions, if not, tr there's probably trillions of dollars at this point that are spent on healthcare every year in the United States. So it's just a massive uh, market. Now, my interest in healthcare uh, or my expertise in healthcare really came as a direct result of the job uh, that I had. As I said, when I graduated from college, I was working for a startup medical device uh, company. And when I joined that company, we were pre-FDA approval. So no revenue, no product on the market. We were just in the R&D stage. And soon after I joined, we did get FDA approval. And about a year into my employment, we launched the product uh, to the market. Uh, my initial role with them was in marketing department. So I was in charge of making brochures, uh, the website, the user guide, all kinds of labeling and stuff like that related to marketing. But after a year, I switched over to being on the sales team. Uh, and that, that was a wonderful uh, decision from both a career and an education perspective because I saw firsthand just how complicated the United States healthcare market was. And more importantly, from a uh, investing perspective, just how loyal 
healthcare providers are to certain products or services and how difficult it can get them to be to change uh, their habits. So I was in the sales, uh, sales for this company for uh, just about 10 years, and it was my job to go out to healthcare providers and convince them to stop using a device that they'd used for a decade or more and to start using uh, my devices. And I learned firsthand just how high the switching costs are <laughs> yeah. uh, in the medical device uh, in industry. And if you look back at history, um, the medical device industry can be it has been historically a pretty good place uh, to put to put capital. Uh, the margins are are very high. Uh, the spending is essentially is essentially recession proof because nobody's going to not get a medical procedure done just because the economy is uh, is 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 doing bad. The switching costs uh, are pretty high, and and those factors generally lead to high returns on capital uh, for for uh, medical device. Uh, companies and in turn, uh, pretty good uh, stock returns. So I'd invested in companies like Dexcom, Intuitive uh, Surgical, and, and, and the likes, and those companies have been phenomenal, phenomenal long-term uh, holdings. Uh, so when I started to become a writer uh, for The Motley uh, Fool in 2015, uh, naturally they said, well, how about you focus on the healthcare uh, industry since you have some, some background in it? So I started studying uh, insurance companies uh, in, in more, more detail, hospitals in more detail, and of course, medical device companies as well. Yeah. And it feeds into the Warren Buffett concept of circular competence. You mm -hmm. know, you, you, you can you can legitimately say you have an edge there because of that experience and because of being in the room and seeing those switching costs and the barriers to entry for a smaller company like yourself. And that goes into any investor listening. If you are in your nine to five and you have that advantage, informational advantage or operational advantage or whatever it is, if you work in a cybersecurity company, you know that industry better. And that's where you can really get an edge. And that's that's what Warren Buffett is saying with that circle of competence theory. So that's great. It's, and it's great to hear it in action, I suppose, and how it dictated your investing career. Um, okay, let's get into investing checklists. For, for, uh, for our listeners who don't know, uh, what is the Feraldi quality score? And I don't know, that's, that could be a very long answer because I've seen the spreadsheet and it's extensive. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, so I've been an active stock picker for almost 20 years now. And after several years of doing it very unsuccessfully, I joined, uh, the, the Motley Fool and my education just, uh, it exploded, uh, uh, from there. And I became far more interested in stock picking than I was prior uh, to that. Now, if you join any stock picking service out there very quickly, uh, you start to learn that there are far more ideas for your money, then there are actual good places that you should uh, put your money. And at the time, I felt like I was sipping from like a fire hose, like the number of recommendations and stocks that I should buy was far higher than my capacity to actually buy them. And what I was trying to do at the time was keep everything in my head where I was like, oh, I really like this company's gross margin and I like their leadership position, but I like that this company is growing faster and it's profitable, but I like that this company this company has a founder-led management team um, and I'm worried about that this company has customer concentration issues. Finally, I got smart enough to say to myself, maybe I should write this down and actually create <laughs> a system uh, for myself for picking uh, investments. 
So I've now done this. I, I've now iterated uh, on this checklist that you're, you're speaking of multiple times. I'm currently on version three uh, uh, of it, and it's more battle tested than it's been um, in, in the past. Uh, but broadly speaking, uh, I have a set of criteria that best match what I personally am looking for in an investment. And whenever I come across a new stock idea or a new business, I take that company through my investing checklist. And I ask myself things like, what do the financial statements look like, right? I want to see a strong balance sheet, a high gross margin, high returns on capital, free cash flow, earnings and earnings per share growth. Uh, I ask, what's the competitive advantage uh, of this company? What's the moat? Does it have a network effect moat, a switching cost moat, uh, a cost advantage moat, an intangible moat, or counter positioning? And, and importantly, what's the direction uh, of that moat? I ask myself, what's the long-term growth potential uh, of, of this company? Is it growing organically or via acquisition? Uh, is it a top dog and first mover in its industry? Uh, does it have operating leverage in the business? Does it have some demonstrated signs of optionality? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So my list is, uh, is, pretty long, um, is pretty long. And as I go down and fill it in, I get an idea for how high, how high of a match is this investment for what I personally uh, am looking for. Now, after that's done, I then take it through my anti-checklist or something that I call the gauntlet, which is basically a list of criteria that turn me off uh, as an investor. So for me, that's things like accounting irregularities. If you have accounting irregularities, you're dead to me. I'm not interested in you, right? If I can't trust the numbers, uh, I'm not going to make an investment in the business. Uh, I don't like any customer uh, concentration or any supplier concentration. I don't like single points of failure uh, in, in businesses. Uh, I don't like it when a company is in an industry that's being disrupted. I don't like it when it, it depends on outside market prices for success, such as interest rates or oil prices. Uh, I don't like it when a company has high stock-based compensation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with my checklist, I can now take any company I've never come across, run it through my checklist in the matter of about an hour or so. And at the end of that process, I get a very clear idea for, is this company a match for what I'm looking for or is it not? And then I just research further the ones that are best match and wait until I think they're trading at attractive prices and add them to my portfolio. There you go. Simple as out of the... Out of the metrics you look at, which do you think are most often overlooked by investors from that checklist? Overlooked by investors? Uh, that's a that's a hard one to to to, to say. I would say um, customer concentration uh, is mm. a is a pretty serious risk in, in my opinion. Essentially, when one company gets ten percent or more of its revenue from a single from a single source, uh, that can be a that's a that's a big risk uh, to me as as an investor. And I've gotten burned in the past by buying companies that get like you know fifty percent of their revenue from companies like Walmart or from Apple, and that means that a single decision at a single customer for any reason essentially blows a hole in the investment thesis um, for, for a company. Another one that I think is is overlooked is uh, what's called optionality. It's just what uh, th does the company have the ability or a demonstrated history of rolling out new products or new services that open up needle moving revenue opportunities? When I look back at the biggest winners uh, of, of all time that I have, that's companies like Mercado Libre, Amazon, um, and, and Tesla. 
and all, uh, and, uh, and, and all three of those companies, um, when I bought them, now look completely different uh, from a revenue perspective than they did when I initially bought them because they were internally developing products and services that, uh, that opened up brand new revenue opportunities uh, down the road. I mean, the classic example is AWS at uh, at Amazon, right? When I bought Amazon, it was a leading uh, e-commerce uh, retailer, and things like uh, Amazon Prime and AWS uh, didn't really exist a- at all. But those have now become major contributors to both the company's top uh, and bottom line. And, and and more recently, advertising, which wasn't even on my radar at all when I was an initial investor in Amazon, is now becoming a significant source of high margin recurring revenue uh, for for Amazon. With Tesla, when I bought Tesla, the only product it had uh, was the Model S. And now it has uh, four models that are on the road and many more models to come. Tesla probably has the highest optionality of any company I've ever studied um, as an investor. And Mercado Libre, when I bought it, was just like the eBay of Latin America. And it was just starting to get into the payments business. You can make a strong argument now that Mercado Libre is more of a payments company uh, than it is an e-commerce uh, a company. So I think that trying to find investments uh, that have strong optionality, the ability to launch new products and new services internally that generate needle moving, that one's key, needle moving growth is a really underlooked way to invest. That's great. Yeah. And three very uh, subtle humble brags there of showing you when you invested in those three businesses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk about AI. Have you ever thought about coding that checklist into some sort of Brian bot that almost does it for you. Uh, I have not, No. <laughs> uh, but the AI tools that are out there are getting easier all the time. So uh, I, I, I guess, I guess that's something that could be done in the future, but that's well outside my area of expertise. Yeah. You're happy. You're happy to get down in, in the nitty gritty for now. Absolutely. Are you you talking about essentially encoding something that goes out to the financial statements or goes out to the annual report and actually like pulls the data in, in a more systematized way? Yeah, exactly. You can just feed it a ticker and it'll spit out your Feroldi score at the bottom. Yeah, I don't know if that would be possible because a lot of the things on my scoring system are subjective by the very nature. I don't think any AI would be able to tell you, oh, this company has a great network effect working for it, or this this company has counter positioning uh, in its in its industry. Uh, some of these things could certainly be automated. For example, I like to check. Does the company have a history of exceeding Wall Street's estimates? Does the company have a history of outperforming uh, the S&P 500? What is the company's Glassdoor rating? So some things on my checklist could certainly uh, be automated, but I actually find there's a lot of value of doing it manually because it takes time to really develop a thesis and importantly, believe that thesis on the inside and to have and have to have conviction uh, in a company. Uh, I don't think I could do that by simply reading an AI generated uh, report. I would still personally want to do the the uh, the work manually myself. But using AI as an initial as an initial extra screening tool before I would take the time to do it on a company uh, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's interesting how you said that how you wouldn't maybe be able to trust that the AI is right because it reminds me of um, Jim Simons from Renaissance Technology. So he's one of the early leaders in quant investing. And I remember he used the the models were making money, but he, he wasn't sure why. And he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't sit right with it. And he's making hundreds of millions, but he would stop it and make sure he could figure out exactly why the money was being made. And then he could eventually trust it. So it's interesting where you're talking about 
there there is definitely a place for AI when it comes to analysis and everything, but the human touch is certainly needed, I think. And I would agree with you there too. Yep. Well, let's say let's say you did develop an AI system and the AI said this stock is a great long-term buy and you go out and buy that stock and then that stock falls 30%. What do yeah. you do then, right? If you don't, if you don't have the conviction to know what is going on and is the long term thesis in this company busted, uh, you're going to be in a place where you have no clue uh, what to do next. And the odds of you panic selling uh, out of that investment, I, I would think, would skyrocket at that point. At, at least they 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 certainly would uh, for for me. So taking the time up front to know why you're investing, uh, what could go wrong, and really developing a process to yourself, that seems like a lot of work, but it pays dividends for years to come yeah you can't borrow conviction isn't that the right. saying uh okay we're going to do a bit of a quick fire round so i'm just going to throw a few questions at you you can just give me a one sentence answer or a fast answer we'll call it that all right sure. uh, okay so first off your best investment decision buying tesla buying tesla do you want to give a year just to just to give a proper brag 2012 very nice. Okay. Your worst investment decision. Jeez, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> using uh, using leverage, uh, using a synthetic long to buy Kinder Morgan. Okay. Very good. Most important metric in your checklist. Boy, that's a hard one. Uh, moat. Moat. Nice. Uh, on moats then, which moat would you think is the most, uh, the most profitable we'll call it for an investment? Network effect. Network effect. Very nice. Okay. Your biggest missed opportunity. If you could go back in time and, and push the, push the buy button or the sell button. Uh, so, uh, Dexcom, uh, I owned a company called Dexcom, a medical device company for about six weeks. And, uh, that turned out to be, and then it 50 bagged, uh, since then. So yeah. I had an, I had a firsthand understanding of how good that company was doing, how fast it was growing everything. I had, I had, I, that that should have been a top holding for me, and and, and I I should have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars in that company by now, if I if I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I think I would know to the red cent how much I would have had if that was me. <laughs> are you actually speaking of Dexcom? Are you worried about um, iPhone? Uh, sorry, not iPhone. What Apple are doing in the space now with the Apple Watch? Do you think? Oh, that, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, Apple is always to be, you know, to be, uh, to be, to be considered. Uh, but breaking into healthcare is is not easy, and I think Dexcom has done a nice job about building itself. Uh, um, uh, it's always been on the leader in from a technology perspective. But to be honest, I have not studied what what Apple is doing uh, in the space all that closely. Okay, uh, your favorite book on investing? Um, I'll go with uh, uh, Warren Buffett and the interpretation of financial statements. Very nice. The most common mistake you see investors make? Selling too early. Selling too early, yeah. I think that's that's almost verbatim. Either the biggest mistake people make themselves or the biggest mistake they see other people make is the early sell. Uh, the one thing you wish everyone knew about investing? That the stock, that the price of the stock and the performance of the business are 100% linked in the long term. What makes, this is a tough one now, maybe to get into one sentence, but what makes a company anti-fragile? I know this is more Brian Stoffel's, yeah. uh, uh, Brian Stoffel's investment thesis, but I, I cash, love the term. Cash and options. Cash and options. If you can only invest in technology or healthcare stocks from here on out, which would you choose? 
technology. What non-investing activity do you find to be the most beneficial to your investing career? Walking. Walking. Yeah. Keep it simple. And then just to finish up, your favorite writer or financial commentator right now? Morgan Housel. Morgan Housel, yeah. Very good. Okay, we're going to finish up. I'm going to ask you, and I know this is very reductive from all you've told and everything, but if you can, because this is what the people tune in for, to give us your some of your favorite stocks right now, investing trends, or even areas to avoid. You can, you can, you have carte blanche to go ahead with that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in the last 19 years, uh, we've seen some, I, I've invested through some interesting market, uh, market cycles. Uh, the thing that I, the thing that the market taught investors during the 2010s was essentially de-emphasize valuation and chase growth at, at all costs. And in, in a zero interest rate environment, that investing style worked extremely well. Uh, now, over the last year, with interest rates finally rising, with inflation finally uh, coming back, uh, interest rates have to be considered and, uh, and valuation has to be considered now far more than at any time over the last uh, 15 uh, years or so. Uh, so I am more focused on valuation today than I have been historically. But see, even with that uh, being said, I still, I personally still like to invest in underlying megatrends and to ride out megatrends for a long period of time. And I, st I still think that e-commerce uh, is a megatrend uh, that is out there that will be the gift that keeps on giving to investors uh, for, for decades to come. I think you can also make the same case uh, with the, the fintech. There are a lot of great financial uh, services uh, companies out there and uh, financial technology companies out there. And I think the move towards digital payments is still in the very early innings uh, of, of its growth cycle. So those two categories have experienced gut-wrenching volatility in both directions over the last three years. Uh, but I still think both of them are a great place to look for investment ideas. For established trends like that, would you look for international participants? So Mercado Libre is a great example, but you could go as far as uh, C Limited uh, yep. over in Southeast Asia. I know like uh, TikTok is having a huge influence in their TikTok shop, especially in um, China. Is, is seeing a trend that you know works, we'll say in the US, maybe developing in a fast growing nation, is that a tactic you would use there? I, I think so. Uh, investing in uh, foreign companies does come with its own set of challenges. They don't think of shareholders the same way. They don't have the same shareholder protections uh, that we do in the U.S. So it is my preference whenever possible to buy companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges because then they have to comply with gap uh, accounting and U.S. Uh, disclosure uh, uh, standards. But uh, yes, to your point, if a trend works in the United States, uh, it can be a great trend to look for in other countries. My personal preference is to buy companies that are in the U.S., that are succeeding in the U.S., that are taking the, their technologies developed in the U.S., and the companies themselves are commercializing them internationally. That's my favorite way uh, to play uh, the, the international markets is through U.S.-based uh, companies, but in some cases going directly to those companies, such as Mercado Libre, can make sense. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. So favorite e-commerce stock right now? Mercado Libre. Are you going to say the same for fintech? Oh, for fintech? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's also it's also a great fintech. Uh, it's also a great fintech play. Um, one company that 
I know is a great business and it's really down at its luck, but I've never studied it closely is Adyen. Uh, so that's on my research list. And I know a lot of um, investors that I respect have a huge amount of, uh, of, of interest in and have bought shares of Adyen. It's not one that I've studied closely, but it's very high up on my, on my uh, research list. Absolutely. And there's so much attention on it now. I think it was one of those high flyers and a lot of people saw it as the Europe's version of Stripe, but I think it's down about 50% since its most recent earnings, about 80% uh, from all time highs. So I think people are smelling an opportunity there. But what would you say, especially in terms of fintech, the general discourse is going along the lines of maybe it's becoming commoditized in the payment mm -hmm. space and payment processors. What, what are your thoughts on that? That's that is entirely possible, but I think that there's a lot to payment processes. I mean, you think about um, making digital payments securely, uh, fraud-free, and doing that very easily uh, is something that I think companies are going. That's a core service that companies are going to need uh, for for years to come. A ditto for transferring money to to uh, friends and and family. So there is an argument made that there's been so much innovation in the in the space uh, that um, that margins are going to come down, take rates are, are going to Come, uh, come down. And if that is true, then fintech might not be a great place to have capital uh, long term. Uh, but I still personally, Visa and MasterCard are two of my biggest two of my biggest positions uh, personally. And both of those companies, I think, are p well positioned to continue to succeed no matter kind of what happens with the level uh, below them. But still, even with that in mind, I think the fintech area is a very interesting place for investors to look and still could have long term potential. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question now, and then I'm going to let you go, because I know I've put you on the spot about five times already. But we're talking fintech. PayPal, do you think deep value territory, value trap, somewhere in between? I own PayPal. I, my hunch is that it's a uh, value opportunity, not a value trap. And my money is where my mouth is on, on that one. But I, I will say the market has really, really punished that, that company. Um, so it's possible that I'm overlooking something. Okay. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure. We will uh, hopefully see you again on Stock Club soon. Take it easy, all right? And actually, if you want to tell people where you're writing, so you have your book, uh, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up, is out on Amazon and all the rest, and then your newsletter, Long-Term Mindset. Is there anything else you want to plug while you're here? Yeah, well, we mentioned my investing checklist before. I do make that freely downloadable if people are interested. So it's just brianferaldi.com backslash checklist. If you could throw a link in the show notes to that, uh, that would be great. Perfect. All right. You'll see everything in the show notes. Brian, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember, if you'd like us to talk about any stocks in particular, you can message us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet. Simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. Thank you very much for tuning in this week, and we will talk to you again. Just a quick interruption here to remind you about our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one -one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone business customer to avail of this service. So just search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the VHub digital experts and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode.